Before you listen to this podcast, we would like to give a shout out to our friend and colleague Bruno. Thank you so much for helping us planning this project and we really, really hope we make you proud. We hope to see you soon. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our first podcast episode. Today, me, Anna, a third-year medical student, will be joined by Ahmad, a fellow third-year medical student, as well as Professor Watkins. We will take the chance to discuss the role of education in racial justice. And once again, I would like to thank everyone that is listening to us, as well as um, our guest. So, Morning, Anna. Morning, Ahmad. Morning. Thank you, sir, um, for joining us. It's uh, really exciting as well as um, a little bit <laughs> nerve wracking, I would say, but hopefully we will break the ice um, with some quick questions. We are aware that um, before uh, being a vice chancellor for Andy Ruskin University, you've spent some time in the United States. And we wonder how this experience has impacted you and how and if that's shaped you in any way or form, as well as the way that you um, respond to racism in your life. Uh, thanks, Anna. Um, so first off, thanks so much for this opportunity for conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, and I'm really, really chuffed to have a chance to meet two of our fantastic BAME advocates. I mean, you're starting with an interesting question because I think it probably my experience in America as a student probably was absolutely definitive of like everything uh, in my life, uh, certainly about my understanding uh, of race and, and a whole set of issues around um, kind of social justice. Um, so I came from a, a very traditional, um, you know, really traditional kind of British um, middle class upbringing with really pretty narrow horizons and all the normal kind of uh, kind of teenage angst about justice and so on, but no real understanding of kind of the lived experience of a wide diversity of people. Uh, and then went to college in America at a place called Oberlin, uh, which is a you know a fantastic um, uh, liberal arts college and was the first college in the states to graduate women. Um, it was one of the first colleges in the states to graduate black students. Um, extraordinarily liberal and articulate about the need to diversify curricula, have diverse student bodies, diverse staff bodies. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, completely life-changing for me, eye-opening. Fantastic. Just following on from that question, what role do you think education plays in challenging racism in our societies? Uh, well, I think probably the role it plays is different from the role it can play um, if you're going to generalize. I mean, I, uh, I am kind of profoundly liberal in my instincts and at the heart of that is, is my belief that education is the force to change the world and, and it is the force to promote social good. And because uh, racial injustice is one of the principal barriers to, to social good, um, I'd see education as fundamentally the key driver to tackling that. And I think it's clear from all the evidence around us that it's not entirely successful in doing that. Now, there are institutions, and Oblit was one of them, um, which have a really proud track record of promoting diversity in, in their student body, their staff body, in raising difficult questions and in requiring all of their community to grapple with difficult questions. And there are other 
universities, um, you know, which are much less ambitious, much less successful in that. Uh, one of the things I genuinely love about ARU is the diversity of our student body, our real determination to talk plainly and clearly with each other uh, around the challenges of racial justice um, uh, and to really grapple with the difficulties of, of promoting properly uh, an inclusive environment. We're not at all, um, at all. Uh, perfect at that. I don't think we're sector leading at that, but I do think we're. I do think we're in a good place to become even better, uh, and I do think we we share an absolute determination to make this um, central to what we do and why we're here as an institution. Thank you, sir, for that. I I do agree that we're not perfect, but conversations like these are definitely bringing us in the right direction. And I think it's a journey and one never really arrives there because there's always going to be a group um, that is marginalized that we must do something um, to include. But I think it's very interesting to hear about um, your experiences in the US, particularly as an Italian student that graduated high school in Eswatini. Um, and I'm sure it will be the same from Ahmad as um, he is a British Pakistani. I think often our perception as well as experience of racism is shaped by our background. So I was wondering if you think at all that, you know, what you witnessed and lived in first person in the United States is somewhat different to the, the situation in the UK right now, both from a societal point of view and from an educational point of view. Yeah, the reason why I have this question in mind is because I remember that doing the summer 2020, during the summer 2020, a Black Lives Matter movement, there was a whole conversation about, um, you know, institutionalized racism and police brutality being kind of a US problem rather than a worldwide issue. So I wanted to know what you thought, if you saw any gross differences between racism in the US and in the UK. So my time in the States was quite a long time ago. I'm quite old, so, you know, States are in a very different place from where it was now. And also being in a liberal arts college in a small town is very different from the lived experience in, uh, in America then um, uh, or in America now. The most striking difference for me uh, as a student was the um, kind of the celebration of diversity and the willingness to uh, kind of the willingness to talk very specifically about different groups um, and not not just at all about the difficult or the difficulties or the challenges they face, but about their identity. So there was kind of a celebration of gay culture, a celebration of different ethnic minority cultures, and some early kind of promotion of celebration of transgender cultures. So this wasn't just moving to um, uh, an environment where there was much greater diversity. There was much greater confidence in identifying and talking about difference and I think I came from a culture where there was um, you know so much unease and discomfort in talking about difference and talking about protected characteristics just it just what it kind of wasn't done frankly I think the more we talk about it and acknowledge it the greater the, the chance we have to understand different perspectives and and to tackle the, the relative levels of disadvantage that different groups might face although of course in talking about it you increase the risks around kind of, um, you know, identity politics or 
the risks around creating kind of binaries between different parts of the population between homosexual and heterosexual or black and binaries clearly can be very damaging but for me it was really striking that people were able to talk very confidently and openly about being black about being jewish and that was really important uh, i'm not entirely sure if that was the question you asked uh, or an answer to the question you asked but that, i think that was the thing i found most different about american culture then mid to late 80s and british culture as i had experienced it uh, would you say that's potentially like um, an American society thing, like in, in the sense that they are more open about talking things, whereas in the UK, in some ways, we're more subdued? Uh, I think all of that's changed. So I think mm. the British culture is now, um, you know, much more open to talking about differences, much bolder, but it's yeah. hugely generational. I mean, it's hugely generational. And my, uh, you know, children are, are, my two children are constantly kind of challenging and inspiring and in, in in how much more sophisticated and understanding and informed they are uh, on all of these issues uh, uh, than I am. So I do think there's a generational issue as well as a kind of an Anglo versus American kind of cultural issue. I think, uh, yeah, there is obviously this kind of prevailing um, uh, weirdly genetic British sense of embarrassment, which probably makes it more difficult for us than it does for Americans to talk about some stuff. But, you know, God, we do need to get over that because that can be really crippling. Uh, and just hold us all back. From my point of view, personally, I am very, very impressed by the UK. Definitely there are conversations to be had and there are problems, but something that is always that has always um, really left a mark on me is that you can be British as well as identify with any ethnicity and any race. And that's something that is kind of lacking in my community back home. Um, maybe because I come from the south of Italy, where maybe grandparents don't really speak Italian, but they still speak dialects and there is a huge culture of exchange instead of, you know, like traditional markets. And yeah, we buy things from each other rather than going to the supermarket. Um, but I think that particularly my generation, Italians really look, you know, they look maybe olive skinned, dark hair, dark eyebrows, a little bit like me. It's different because maybe the culture is changing, but I think that as immigration started a little bit later on compared to the UK, one can't really see like somebody that is Italian and is of Pakistani background or better. We wish we could see it, but there still is a barrier. So the communities aren't as integrated as in the UK where, for example, when doing a survey, you can write that you are British Pakistani, like Ahmadis or British Indian or whatever else. I think it's much more, um, it's much more integrated from that point of view, which has always been really, really impressive to me. And obviously that's something which, which we as a nation, we kind of talk about wanting to achieve that shared sense of belonging, belonging to being British, fully welcome and supported and British and yet allowed to fully celebrate and identify with um, another cultural background as well. I just don't know whether that's a lived experience of all. Uh, I'm sure it isn't going to be the lived experience of all minority groups in, in Britain. And I'm sure it'll vary if you're living in London compared to if you're living in um, you know, a rural area or you're living in you know, Scotland or something. It's going to be a very, very different experience, I think, for individuals. I think it is definitely going to be a different experience, but maybe we can find some common ground in 
um, you know, things that we all have to go through in order to make it as maybe standardized as possible. For example, I think that education plays a vital role in something similar um, because at the end of the day, we all have to go to school and maybe even if we live in a part of the country that is not as diverse as London, for example, I think that that's where we can be provided with the platform to really understand each other and learn about each other's cultures and racial identities and really celebrate them. Do you think that education plays this vital role and do you think it should play even more of a vital role in challenging racism? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, education is a pillar of kind of public institutions, um, public service, uh, and I think education, health service, all, all of these big, big public services need to to use the privilege they have to bring together and to try and create understanding between different communities and to properly identify the needs of different communities and different individuals within those communities uh, and serve them equally. So yeah, I, I agree. I think for many uh, students right across the country, it will be through school, through primary school and then secondary school that they have their first real opportunity to understand more about the issues around racism and around the difference between different groups in the country. Just following on from that point, as you're somebody who's part of the education sector, um, what sort of things do you think they should try and teach? Um, I think one of the things which came up in the Black Lives Matter movement and particularly on the UK was talking about the history of colonization in this country and the empire. Is that something you would think maybe should be taught or talked about more than it is currently? I certainly think the you know the history of the nation and its colonial past needs to be talked about in different ways from the ways in which it has traditionally been taught about so that it's seen from different perspectives and we get a much broader range of voices kind of reflecting on that history but I'm not saying anything controversial I think that's entirely kind of accepted and clearly there are really important um, uh, moves afoot to diversify curricula, decolonize curricula, to introduce wider diversity of writers into literature curriculum and composers into music curricula and stuff. This isn't just about races, it's about gender and all sorts of other forms of diversity. Yeah, I think that's urgent work. I think it's, it's, it's constantly being beaten up as part of the culture wars. I think it's urgent work and I think it's plainly in everybody's interests. Uh, that we managed to create a more diverse set of lenses on our history and on our culture. I completely agree and I think that that's where the role of the BAME advocates, particularly the BAME advocates working in, in the diversification stream, is going to be super helpful and hopefully, you know, through their work we will see less um, maybe overt racism in education as well as less microaggressions from teachers as well as students that maybe aren't really aware and they just, you know, need to be, uh, have a, a shift in their perspective in order to understand where others are coming from. I think I have personally um, witnessed some microaggressions where I'm sure that people didn't really mean it, but I don't think that in 2021 one can say that they don't mean a racial microaggression because particularly in an environment like higher education where we are all adults and we all have access to the internet and books in the library, we should really, you know, take ownership of our actions and educate ourselves in order for, for us to be more understand, 
understanding of other people's backgrounds. And I think it's really in little things as in, you know, wanting to learn how to pronounce people's name correctly and not assume somebody's, I don't know, gender, racial identity and more. But I was really interested in in asking you, Professor Watkins, if in your educational experience as a student and as a teacher, if you've ever, um, you know, witnessed or experienced any overt racism or any microaggressions, and just for the people that are listening to us, um, microaggressions are like more subtle acts of racism that are often not really discussed upon just because they are like we thought we think that they are somewhat embedded in society um, and often they are based on stereotypes so um yes professor okay. that's a huge question so um let me let me say a few things on microaggressions first and then um you know maybe we discuss that and then i think it would be be probably good to come back to the the issue of like really overt chunky um racist behaviours in education. In terms of microaggressions, I'm absolutely sure, um, yes, that I that I witnessed micro uh, both racially motivated ones and ones by homophobia or whatever. I'm pretty sure that I commit microaggressions. And I think it's really important that at the same time as saying they're not acceptable, we absolutely need to hold ourselves up to a higher standard. Yes, we absolutely need to learn more, read more, reflect more and behave with more care. You know, we're not perfect. And if if the only acceptable behavior of any of us is to be perfect, then this kind of isn't going to work because I, I think we need to accept. I think um, you know somebody in my position uh, needs to accept um, with humility the fact that I'm like not anything like perfect at all the things that I'm talking about, how we need to achieve as individuals and as societies and as institutions. So I, I don't want to say, uh, yeah, I've witnessed these in other people, but they never have been committed by me. I think we all need to work hard to really properly understand the sorts of small things that can frequently go wrong and really disempower or humiliate or embarrass or or block um, you know, an, another person, whether that's because of their race or their sexual orientation or their gender or whatever. Um, long answer to your question i do think this is an important issue but I, I i just don't think it's possible for any of us to be really confident we are free of those behaviors no that's completely understandable and i do think that the first step um for society to get better and for us to get better at it is to admit that we aren't free of racism we live in a racist society and like sponges we have absorbed and we have internalized certain behaviors of or, and thoughts but really the only way that we can learn is by doing some self-reflection and understanding that we are wrong sometimes but once we've understood that i think it's important to commit to being better and to avoid making those mistakes because that's the only way that we can move forward um, okay. as individuals and and as a society ahmad what do you think no, yeah, I agree with both points which you guys have made there. Um, I think one thing I was particularly thinking about when you guys were talking about uh, microaggressions, I suppose, and, you know, thinking of unconscious bias and things like that, which exist. Um, as somebody who's a medical student and part of the, the healthcare, um, well, future healthcare system, 
uh, I do think it's so important that we are taught about these things. And one thing I'm excited about with the diversifying and decolonizing the curriculum at ARU is, you know, if we do talk about these things for healthcare students or, I don't know, education students and stuff like that, it will have a genuine impact on their careers and how they treat patients or how they treat pe uh, people throughout their career. And, and that's something which I think is so important um, at a higher education level. But yeah, that's just something I was thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think the training of uh, future health professionals, future police officers, future teachers, uh, and, and the need to build into that curricula, the issue of microaggressions, but also the issues of some of the clear evidence of systemic res um, uh, racism in the outcomes of, uh, you know, patients in healthcare or students in education. I think that's absolutely critical. And if a university like ARU isn't doing that, then, you know, there's very little hope because we're much more likely to do it than some of the really very, very long established, very traditional um, centres of education. Um, can I come on to this this question about kind of clear overt acts of racism? And you know, I'm I'm lucky in, in that clearly these are never have never been aimed at me. I don't have any experience of that. But yeah, I have seen, uh, and it's been you know, extraordinarily uncomfortable. I have seen, um, especially black academics, really struggling with um, being treated with. Um, equality and full respect in HE and that that has been uh, you know an extraordinary um, kind of surprise and disappointment for me um, and uh, yeah learned a lot from that because I had totally underestimated the difficulties it would be uh, or the difficulty that, that uh, there would be for you know, a black academic to enter a, um, a largely non-black university community no that's thank you for that and i think that um that data suggests that there is evidence that it's not only um lecturers and academics that struggle but students of ethnic minorities um struggle as well when they go to higher education environments even higher education environments that are as diverse as aru i think we can really take a look at around in university and we will notice the diversity but being diverse doesn't mean being um you know fair to every single group um that is there and i think that the bame advocates have particularly you know done um surveys and research where um we have noticed that students from ethnic minorities are less likely to achieve higher grades in education they are less likely to come back after the first year and they struggle more when graduating once they go on to, um, you know, looking for a job. So how do you think that this can be managed slash are we doing anything well and what can be done better as an institution? Uh, yeah, thanks, Anna. So, I mean, this is a, a huge area for us um, and for the HE sector more broadly. Uh, and as you know, because you're both strongly involved in trying to help us work in this, there are a whole set of kind of work streams around it. I mean, the data is very clear that black students and BANE students in HE in the UK in general are less likely to achieve a first or two one, less likely to complete their degree, less likely to get a graduate um, level job on graduation and you know plainly that is not acceptable and and it is it is widely understood across the sector and and in the uh, the regulator that you know the target isn't to 
reduce those gaps, it is to remove those gaps. Those gaps can only speak to various forms and um, uh, realizations of systemic racism, not only in the HE sector at all. They may absolutely speak to all sorts of other uh, consequences of um, systemic racism. It could be about economic disadvantage or any other intersectionalities or prior educational support or any other kind of impact which will uh, affect a student's success at university. So there's a whole lot of work underway at ARU and there is all sorts of reason and evidence to tell us that we're making really good progress. So we, so, so the uh, awarding gap or attainment gap, whatever you want to call it, between our black students and our white students has closed very much more rapidly than uh, the national average. There is still an awarding gap and an attainment gap, and that therefore still speaks to the fact that we have not succeeded in what needs to be done. But the fact that it has closed that rapidly is really important, uh, and we, we study that really closely. Um, and, and there's other indicators too that we are making good progress. So our black students upon graduation, their chance of securing a graduate level job, uh, the gap between their chance and our white students' chances is much narrower than the national average, and we've done well with that. Uh, and in, in surveys of student experience and national student survey, again, our black students tend to report more favorably on their experience than you would expect or might expect if you were to take the UK gaps as kind of average. None of this is job done. All of this, frankly, is under threat in COVID. We see COVID driving um, social, and economic and educational inequalities right across the country. They're going to be doing that in HE2, or COVID is going to be doing that in HE2, and it's going to be doing that at ARU. And we're you know, busy right now looking at how we can best support those students who are most likely to be most impacted by coronavirus in terms of their educational success. Uh, and a disproportionately large number of those students will be BAME students for all the reasons um, that we've been talking about. There are other um, things we're doing, but you, but you know about the other things we're doing. We also need to be working really hard to decolonize our curricula. We need to be really trying to promote a much stronger sense of inclusion and of well-being, making sure that all of our students uh, understand how welcome and how important they are community, celebrating the diversity of our student body, celebrating the diverse contributions of different groups in our student body. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a pretty long list of things underway, uh, all of which need to work together if it's going to achieve the change that we want to see. I completely agree with um, the things you said there. I think one thing which is like, you know, when I think about it in a general view is quite worrying is that, yes, like we could focus on higher education and think about the attainment gap that exists there. But, you know, when you also think about it, the same inequalities exist, um, as you said, you know, in, in like secondary education and also in careers. Like I think some of the highest positions in the UK and like CEO positions or consultancy positions, um, black and ethnic minorities are much, much less likely to get those positions. So I think it's important, yes, that we do what we do from a, a higher education perspective, but I think it worries me in a sense. I don't know how, you know, those wider issues are also going to change. Well, I think we have a responsibility as a university to try and drive change because we are 
educating the future professionals and leaders who actually will be in a position to impact change, whether that's in, in the health services or whether it's in education or in politics or just in, in working in their communities, just like our children, my children are frankly more alert, more intelligent, more articulate and better at thinking about these problems than I am and my generation is, you know, so our students will be uh, and they will be able to drive that change. So it's not just about, for me, all the work we're doing is not just about trying to secure great outcomes for our students who are with us now. It's about trying to ensure that those students graduate and try and achieve the same change and drive the same outcomes in their professions when they leave. And that's, in a sense, that's where the impact of education is really delivered. What happens in university is really exciting. It's like, it's the best thing for me, it's the best part of my life, but what really matters is the impact that then change that drives when people leave university and go and act in the world. Yeah, I definitely agree. University is a very exciting part of our life, but I think that it's also important that it prepares us um, for the future. And I think that some things that ARU is doing that I am aware of, uh, but maybe all of our students um, aren't, or some of our students aren't, are doing really um, great at preparing us for the future. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk to us more about these uh, professor. For example, the Race Equality Charter, the 10,000 Black Intern Scheme, the new SHINE program. I think all of these are things that ARU is doing particularly well, because personally I am not really aware of similar uh, initiatives in other um, higher education institutions. So can you tell us more about, you know, the ideas behind these and um, how they're working so far? Uh, yeah, thank you very much. I think you're being very generous to ARU. I think there are some things that we are trying to lead on, but the, the examples you provide are really, really important examples, but they are nationwide programs and ARU is, is, you know, benefiting from the leadership, frankly, that others have shown before. So the Race Equality Charter um, uh, is a charter we are now seeking to achieve approval under that's that's a journey we need to go on and um, that's going to be quite challenging and appropriately so but we want to meet the requirements of the race equality charter so we have established a working group um, to lead on that work uh, and we'll be monitoring that really closely 10,000 black interns is a really great um, uh, initiative uh, which we've signed up to recently which i first learned about a few months ago when we had a presentation that's going out to a much smaller model uh, and we're really, really keen to use that in, in turn to, to drive change. But I wouldn't want to be claiming that ARU is, is leading the HE sector in terms of promoting racial justice or racial understanding or tackling racism. I want to be on the front foot. I want to be an example of good practice. Um, and there's more, we, we much more we need to do if we are going to be able to show leadership to other HE institutions. Just following on from that point then, we've mentioned some of the stuff that ARU is doing and in particular in this area, um, where do you see ARU going in the next 10 years, um, 10 years and where would you like it to be? Uh, well, I would like us to be, um, uh, you know, really excellent at the sorts of things that we talk about uh, all the time, which is about being innovative, uh, inclusive and entrepreneurial. So I, I think we have made really good progress, as I've said, around inclusion. But in 10 years time, we need to see much less evidence of 
gaps in the attainment of different um, student groups, different demographic groups and in our graduating class. They, in 10 years time, there really isn't an acceptable reason in my view why they should persist. We need to see a much more diverse workforce, especially academic and management workforce to, to reflect the diversity of our student body. That's clearly a failure at the moment. Uh, we have already significantly improved the diversity of our governing body, which is excellent, but uh, we need to we need to achieve a similar uh, and a greater diversification of our academic staff and our management group. Uh, and one thing which we haven't mentioned, but I, but I think is absolutely tied into this issue and is going to be really important for the next 10 years is sustainability. And I, for me, uh, I, for me, I think we need to articulate a way that all of our students understand that promoting um, long term, healthy, safe, happy communities requires us to tackle with equal urgency the climate emergency and the sustainability challenges and racial injustice. And that's not, you know, that isn't it only, of course, there are, there are equal challenges for some aspects around um, sexual orientation and some aspects around gender diversity. But for me, that whole thing around kind of safe, inclusive, resilient societies, if in 10 years, we all understand that that's what ARU is about, creating and promoting and sustaining safe, inclusive, resilient societies, then, you know, that'll be a really, really good place to have got to in 10 years time. Thank you. It sounds really, really good. And thank you for including the climate emergency. I think I personally really appreciate how you've mentioned, um, you know, diversification as a whole, because there is so much intersectionality between racism and homophobia and climate justice towards, you know, like to do something towards the climate emergency. And I do think that um, we should be tackling those as a whole because those as a whole do impact big communities more um, than white communities in general. Um, however, I must admit that maybe because I am not necessarily negative, but maybe a little bit realistic, um, I often think that um, initiatives such as um, the Race Equality Charter or 10,000 Black Interns can easily somewhat become a tick box exercise rather than an initiative to drive change. And, you know, we often hear people saying like, oh, you just, um, you know, you just got into this because they need to take 30% women or whatever else. So um, how can we make sure that these become real initiatives to drive change to the point where they won't be needed anymore because um, real equality and justice will be there in society? Uh, that's a really good question. I don't think there'll be a point where initiatives of this sort are not needed anymore in my lifetime. I mean, I, I, I think every moment that anybody has thought we're in a, like a post-racial society, for, for example, it's just like a really dangerous moment. So at, if at any point AIU thinks it no longer needs to sign up to things like the Race Equality Charter, I think that's a really dangerous moment because those inequities will have persisted, even if they're not being talked about or we're, or we're pretending they've gone away, that's, that is not going to happen in my lifetime. Uh, and I'm entirely confident these things won't be tick boxes because I'm entirely confident in my own determination and the determination of my colleagues to tackle this agenda. That sounds incredibly arrogant, um, but I am entirely confident. 
equally, I recognize that they could be used entirely as tick box exercises, but that would be by a different senior team. I, I know I know why we are doing these things. And if we weren't doing these things, we'd be doing other things to try and achieve the same aims. Thank you. That's great. Yeah, I think um, our time today is unfortunately um, uh, up. Yeah. yeah, I definitely want to thank you both for engaging this much. Um, in the conversation today. It was definitely inspiring. However, I think that it doesn't end that it shouldn't end like this, meaning that so many more of these conversations and so many more uh, actions need to be taken in order for us to progress even more. Um, but yes, thank you so much to the both of you.